0: This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today.
1: To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at Marketplace.org donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at Marketplace.org donate.
2: How crawling the internet creates a tangled legal web when it comes to AI. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Washington, D.C., I'm Kimberly Adams in for Kai Rizdahl. It's Thursday, December 28th. Good to have you with us. As you've probably heard by now, the New York Times is suing OpenAI and Microsoft for allegedly copying and regurgitating its content via ChatGPT, a product the paper says is now acting as a competitor. It's the latest in a slew of lawsuits from content creators and publishers, including comedian Sarah Silverman and Game of Thrones author George R.R. R. Martin, who say tech companies are violating copyright law by training AI models on their work without permission or compensation. At the heart of these cases is the practice of scraping, the ingestion of vast amounts of data from all over the Internet. Marketplace's Megan McCarty Carino explains.
0: The internet is crawling with bots, scanning website by website, downloading and indexing everything. Many of these web crawlers help retrieve information from that vast sea of data for search engines. But increasingly, they are feeding generative AI models, hungry for human content to learn from. You know, GPT is an overeager college intern who's read the entire internet. Chachilia Zaniti is an AI entrepreneur and former counsel for several tech companies who has read the entire New York Times lawsuit. We'll save you the technicalities. Basically, the New York Times is alleging its content was heavily weighted in a data set that OpenAI has acknowledged using to train earlier versions of ChatGPT, something called Common Crawl. Common Crawl was a nonprofit organization put together to basically make a copy of the Internet. And law professor Daniel Gervais at Vanderbilt University says that copy of the Internet could fall under the doctrine of fair use, which allows for the reproduction of copyrighted works in some circumstances. But there are limits.
1: One of the factors they consider is whether the use is commercial.
0: He says many AI companies start out as nonprofits when developing their technology and then go on to build for profit products. Meanwhile, an increasing number of websites have begun blocking web crawlers from copying their content, says computer science professor Arvind Narayanan at Princeton.
3: That just means putting an instruction on your website that every web crawler or robot is supposed to honor.
0: But it's a little bit of a gentleman's or gentle bots agreement.
3: Other ways of blocking bots are kind of more adversarial. They would use technology to recognize the ways in which bots behave subtly differently from regular
2: people.
0: And then kick them off the site. I'm Megan McCarty Carino for Marketplace.
2: Wall Street today. Not much changed as we wind down the trading year. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. now a couple of months into the resumption of federal student loan payments. The pandemic-era three-year pause ended in October. Even before those payments kicked back in, some who keep an eye on the student loan space warned it was going to be a messy process. And new data from the Department of Education suggests they were right. More than a third of borrowers who had payments due in October hadn't made them by mid-November. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has more. You know how you're supposed to pull a Band-Aid off really quickly just to get it over with? Kind of the opposite happened with the
4: end of the student loan payment pause, which was pushed back over and over and over.
2: You, like, almost conditioned people to, like, keep expecting pauses.
4: Dalia Jimenez is director of the Student Loan Law Initiative at the University of California, Irvine. She says people got out of the habit of paying their student loan bills and budgeted the money for other things. And now?
2: They have to juggle now. You need to find some kind of regular income increase um, in your life uh, that you may have reallocated.
4: Borrowers who miss payments won't be considered delinquent until next September. Another challenge, an estimated 40 percent of borrowers are working with new loan servicers. That's because a number of servicers left the industry in the past few years. Because of
2: that, we've seen just a huge migration of accounts over the last couple of years.
4: Persis U is with the Student Borrower Protection Center. She says borrowers should have been notified if there was a change, but that process wasn't seamless. And even when it was, they may not have
2: realized who was reaching out. We're all inundated by emails and spam mail all the time. And these companies have fairly arcane names. You know, the borrowers may not recognize that as a piece of mail that they need to open.
4: Meanwhile, those servicers are having to do more with less. Congress gave the Department of Education the same budget to pay them this year as it did last year. Scott Buchanan is executive director of the trade association, the Student Loan Servicing Alliance. He says that's one reason hold times went up earlier this year.
5: I mean, it's sort of the rough equivalent of, you know, asking someone to, instead of working 40 hours a week, work 60 hours a week and then not paying them a dime more to do it.
4: Buchanan points out that people weren't great at paying their student loans on time prior to the pandemic. And he says over the next couple of months, we'll get a better sense of what repayment looks like now that the Band-Aid is off. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace.
2: This week, we've been bringing you stories of family-owned businesses, a quilt store run by a mother and daughter in South Dakota, a couple and their family running a distillery in Wyoming, all to explore the ups and downs of working with people you love. As part of this series, we wanted to check back in with a sibling pair we've chatted with before, sister and brother Rico and Crystal Worrell running the native design business Trickster Company up in Juneau, Alaska.
3: We used to have a brick and mortar shop, we don't anymore. But you know, it was a symbol to have a native owned design shop in a very touristy city that usually has a lot of knockoff stuff. So we're kind of working out figuring out franchising so that we can still have that representation in physical spaces. So there's a lot of moving parts in, in figuring out franchising.
6: Yeah, I'm constantly busy you know we always have ideas but it's a it's a game of time
3: <laughs> yeah franchising has got like really extensive laws around it and it's and it's kind of complicated so we're trying to find you know a lawyer to even help us get set up you know we've got to have our trademarks with the federal government in place we have to have solid brand guidelines i think that's the biggest like step for us to keep growing The idea of growing a business is crazy. Like when I first started, it was just me in the shop and I was just, you know, carving hundreds of pairs of earrings every night, like just to like keep, you know, things going.
6: When we started, I had just finished college and was just super broke and bumming a futon in Rico's condo. (laughs) But it's always been really nice to have a studio mate to be like, Hey, what do you think of this? Or, you know, you spend a lot of time staring at one design. And so a fresh pair of eyes is nice. But now that we've, you know, grown and expanded, my studio gets a little bit lonely. And so I feel like it's just brought us closer together. Rico's really good at a lot of things I'm not good at. And I guess you could say it goes the other way around.
3: I think Crystal's always been the true artist of the family. Like ever since she was young, she was like... Always making paintings and all kinds of stuff, and like I don't think I don't think I called myself an artist until a couple of years ago, because most of the time I was I was more of like a creative geek than, than an artist.
6: I remember though when we were growing up, we built an entire little tiny town um, using the construction paper. And we built a little shop together, <laughs> and one was a clothing store with tiny clothing. The art store had really bad art in it. So, you know, I feel like since day one, we've been working together on, on a shop with uh, what we have access to, you know, since the beginning. You know, it's really cool that we could be creative, but also be in tune with our upbringing and our family. Rico and Crystal
2: Worl, the brother and sister behind Trickster Company up in Juneau, Alaska. We couldn't do this series without you. So family business or not, let us know what's going on in your economy. Marketplace.org slash economy. Lots of companies like to say work is like family, even when it is not. And some of those non-familial frictions were particularly noticeable this year, with more visible and vocal organized labor. Those trying to start new unions or striking over new contracts were helped by the highest level of public approval in decades, according to Gallup. The tight labor market, in some cases, also gave unions more leverage in negotiations. Next year could be another big year for organizing, with companies including Boeing, AT&T, and the U.S. Postal Service up for new contracts. But will unions still have the same leverage and momentum? Marketplace's Henry Epp reports.
7: Labor unions had a moment this year, in part because workers were frustrated coming out of the early years of the pandemic, argues Kate Bronfenbrenner, Director of Labor Education Research at Cornell.
6: The
2: real driving force has been the anger that workers have, that sense that they sacrifice so much.
7: She says that anger among union members and a more confrontational tone from some labor leaders, like the head of the United Auto Workers Union, drove labor successes this year.
2: I do believe there's been a changed um, energy and mood in the labor movement. They're excited, they're angry, they're ready to
7: go. But enthusiasm alone doesn't win a better contract. You can't negotiate a collective bargaining agreement in a vacuum. Michael Letito leads the Workplace Policy Institute at the law firm Littler. He says union negotiators have especially benefited from the low unemployment rate. Fewer workers makes employees more valuable to a company. But he says after years of working to get back to pre-pandemic levels of labor force participation, there are signs that job gains might slow next year.
5: Things are stabilizing, and I'm not sure
7: that that creates the best environment from a unionized standpoint with respect to trying to negotiate a deal. If the job market and the overall economy strengthens in 2024, union negotiators will be able to ask for more generous contracts, he says. But if things slow down,
5: It's very difficult for labor to be able to say, I want more, 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 because the answer to more, more, more is fewer and fewer jobs.
7: Still, the fact that workers were willing to strike for weeks or months at a time in 2023 may have taught some employers a lesson, says Sharon Block, a professor at Harvard Law School.
2: I hope
4: that they learn that at the end of the day, they need to share (laughs) with their
0: employees.
7: If they do, they can avoid a major disruption to their business. I'm Henriette for Marketplace.
2: Coming up,
1: he's only twenty, and he's not a financial wizard. He would admit
2: that's most of us at that age, though, right? But first, let's do the numbers. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained fifty-three points, a tenth percent, to finish at thirty-seven thousand seven hundred and ten. The Nasdaq shed four points, barely changed, to end at fifteen thousand ninety-five, and the S and P five hundred was up one point, less than a tenth of a percent, to close at forty-seven eighty-three. The National Association of Realtors today released pending home sales for November. No change from October, but sales were down 5.2 percent from November of last year. These figures are the lowest since the index was founded in 2001. Millions of Americans could get sticker shock next week when previously free COVID nineteen treatments go into the private market. Drug maker Pfizer will charge thirteen hundred and ninety dollars for a five day course of its Paxlovid pills. Pfizer shares were up six tenths percent. Bond prices fell. The yield on the ten year T note rose to three point eight four percent. Enjoy listening to Marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kimberly Adams. For months out of every year, residents in wildfire-prone areas know to expect poor air quality. They put on masks and stay inside when it gets bad, avoid breathing in smoke or find particles the best they can. But what about when the air quality is always poor and staying inside all day every day just isn't an option? According to reporting from the nonprofit news organization Capital B, pollution is pervasive in the industrial cities of the Midwest, and the effects of it are felt even more intensely in majority black communities. And that's driving black families away from the region. Adam Mahoney is a national climate and environment reporter with Capital B. Adam, welcome to the program.
5: Thanks for having me.
2: So, which Midwest cities did you focus on for this piece, and why?
5: Yes. Yeah, so um, earlier this year, I traveled throughout the Midwest to report on you know, the black exodus from a lot of the, the biggest once industrial hubs in the region. So we focused on Chicago, Detroit, uh, Gary, Indiana, in addition to St. Louis and Cleveland, Ohio.
2: Can you make the connection for me between these industrial hubs and pollution and what your story is actually about, which is migration?
5: You know, as, as most folks know, during the first great migrations between 1910 and 1970, millions of black folks left the South towards northern cities, towards Midwestern cities. And a lot of folks settled in these growing industrial hubs and a lot of these industries kind of thrived on black labor right they were able to underpay black workers while you know black folks were struggling through these kind of treacherous working conditions and all the while that was happening as we now know these industrial facilities were kind of destroying black communities with pollution whether it be from you know air sources or water contamination soil contamination and once these industries slowly started to die off, it left um, black communities kind of trapped, one, without the, the economic security now, but also with that industrial pollution and the fallout um, with that in terms of health outcomes. So what we found was that in the Midwest, despite black folks only being, you know, making up 10 percent of the Midwestern population, they make up roughly A third of those living in communities that are deemed, quote unquote, disadvantaged um, by environmental injustices, so by pollution and contamination. Um, So that's a a big disparity. A lot of um, those environmental harms and those health outcomes have kind of led to the black exodus from these cities, right, as people try to move away from those harms.
2: And where are people going?
5: Yeah, it's it's a little ironic. Um, Right now, the South is the um, only region in the United States where more black people have moved to than from since 2000. Um, A lot of those growing hubs are places like Atlanta, um, Charlotte, North Carolina. And I say it's ironic because as folks are leaving the Midwest um, to escape these environmental harms, they're kind of running towards the epicenter of climate change. Um, And a a lot of these growing hubs are places that are constantly hit by climate disasters, um, and not to mention they have their own um, environmental and, and pollution harms there as well.
2: What are some of the long-term implications of this, especially for the communities left behind?
5: Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen pretty stark and, and deep fallouts already. I can just use Gary, Indiana as, as an example, which was a city that was literally built by and for industry. It was founded by the um us steel corporation which at the time was the largest corporation um in the world and once that steel production declined and those jobs left it kind of created this vast hole where now Gary has been dealing with um bankruptcy for for well over a decade gun violence has risen poverty has risen so all of those ills that kind of mark a divested community were exactly born out of that process of deindustrialization that was once driven by the migration of Black folks.
2: What do you think needs to happen, especially, you know, when it comes to regulations around this stuff, to actually make a difference? Or is this just a trend that's going to happen?
5: I think there are a lot of factors at play. We live in a system still in terms of environmental regulations where industry and capital kind of dictates progress in terms of lowering pollution. I think at the end of the day, in which a lot of activists and community organizers has shared to me, is that really the only way to guarantee safe and healthy communities is to have these polluting industries not exist there. Um, and that obviously has everything to do with our shift to renewable energy. Um, but really, at the end of the day, That is what folks are pushing for, um, is for clean jobs in their neighborhoods and, you know, not to be overburdened by pollution at the end of the day.
2: Adam Mahoney is a national climate and environment reporter with the nonprofit news organization Capital B. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. can be a challenge for many this time of year to make sure the timing for dollars going out of a bank account matches up with the timing of the dollars coming in, with the risk of overdraft fees and other penalties if those numbers don't quite line up. Many people associate overdraft fees with large commercial banks, and that 's understandable. Last year they brought in nearly eight billion dollars in overdraft revenue. but turns out those fees are big business for some credit unions too. A law passed last year in California is revealing how much these not for profit financial institutions are collecting from customers whose checking accounts go negative kpbs 's Scott Rod in San Diego has this story.
1: Curtis Fitzgerald has been going to this San Diego County Credit Union branch for years. I see the credit union ideally as a part of the fabric of the community. But his feelings towards San Diego County Credit Union started to sour somewhat when his son Antonio began banking here. Fitzgerald says Antonio worked hard, but he always seemed to be running out of money. He's only 20 and he's not a financial wizard, he would admit. So finally he came to me one day. And he said, well, what is this $32 fee? It was an overdraft penalty, and a look at Antonio's account statements revealed he'd paid a number of them. Fitzgerald worked with his son on money management and talked about how to avoid overdrafts going forward. The credit union's overdraft policy is easily accessible, and Antonio, of course, can check his account balance at any time. Still, Fitzgerald felt the penalties were excessive. It seems like a a credit union shouldn't be charging someone $32 for a transaction that's, you know, $10 or $20 or whatever. Four times a day, maybe even. It seemed to Fitzgerald more like something you'd expect from a big bank. And that was ironic, considering San Diego County Credit Union's ads that lampoon greedy banks. In one commercial, when a customer asks a question, the banker only responds with one word.
6: So, you offer free checking, right?
1: Money, money, money. Money, money, money. The credit union is trying to set itself apart.
2: We're nothing like a big bank. We're better.
1: San Diego County Credit Union, which declined an interview request, collected $18 million in overdraft fees last year. All told, credit unions chartered in California generated a quarter billion dollars in overdraft revenue, according to state data. For years, big banks have had to disclose proceeds from overdrafts. But Aaron Klein, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, says credit unions,
7: on the other hand, have largely escaped scrutiny on overdraft by a combination of wrapping themselves in the good guy flag as a nonprofit mission-oriented entity and by not releasing data to the public. California's new law is
1: changing that. All state-chartered credit unions and banks are now required to disclose how much they generate in overdraft revenue. Klein argues overdraft fees disproportionately impact low-income customers and can make their financial situations worse.
7: Regulators should treat overdraft as the five-alarm fire that it has burning through low-income communities and families living paycheck to paycheck But some credit
1: unions, which often tout their connection to the community, push back on this characterization. We call it a service. We don't call it a fee. It's not a junk fee. Bill Burney is the CEO of Frontwave Credit Union in Oceanside. He says many of his customers rely on overdraft withdrawals at the end of the month as a kind of bridge before their next payday. That said, Frontwave collected nearly $8 million in overdraft fees last year. And without that revenue, the credit union's financial records indicate in 2022, it could have lost money. So it is an important source of income to us. I just don't think we do it in a predatory way. Big banks have faced scalding criticism for their overdraft practices in recent years from politicians and the public. And now overdraft revenue at big banks is down. Some have created overdraft grace periods, while others have eliminated the fees altogether. Advocates hope the new law in California forces credit unions across the country to also open their books. In San Diego, I'm Scott Rodd for Marketplace.
2: This final note on the way out today, lots of changes kick in with every new year, including a new batch of movies, music, writing, and other artworks losing their copyright protections. The Duke Center for the Study of the Public Domain tracks what's becoming available for folks to copy, share, and build upon. Sound recordings from 1923 are up, including The Charleston, recorded by James P. Johnson, and Downhearted Blues, recorded by Bessie Smith. Books on the list from 1928 include A.A. Milne's House at Pooh Corner, which introduces the character of Tigger. And getting the most attention in the film category, Disney's Steamboat Willie and Plane Crazy, the first to include the iconic character of Mickey Mouse. John Buckley, John Gordon, Rick Carr, Diantha Parker, Amanda Peacher, and Stephanie Seek are the Marketplace editing staff. Amir Babawi is the managing editor, and I'm Kimberly Adams. We'll be back tomorrow. This is APM.